Good morning, everyone. It is getting very close to Christmas, isn't it? Um, in fact, according to my chocolate advent calendar, it's only two sleeps away. Thank you. And it's, it's so good, isn't it, to be here this morning together. Um, we are the, the beneficiaries of so much hard work uh, being done by frontline workers and the, the tech team here to, you know, and all the teams to make all this stuff happen. Um, people just putting other people's needs before their own. That's, uh, we are so grateful for the love that they've shown us that we can be here today. Well, my daughter made a very keen observation the other day. She said, Dad, have you noticed how so many Christmas movies and TV shows are just basically Christmas rip-offs of the original? Yeah, I think she's right. Like, you can just take the characters out of any story, but now, ooh, look, it's snowing. And is that the sound of sleigh bells I hear? Add in a dash of sentimentalism and a weak half-baked plot, you know, something about the joy of sharing and believing in miracles. And hey, buddy, you got yourself a nice Christmas special there. Is that what Christmas is? The same old story of humanity trotted out, but this time with wise men and shepherds? If that's all it is, we could probably do without it. But I think if we take a closer look, we're going to see that there is something much more dramatic happening here. There is a film that Anna and I have enjoyed a few times now called Stranger Than Fiction. Anyone seen that? Yes, my wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go and see it, it's good. Um, it's the story of Harold Crick, uh, who is an ordinary guy, but then one day he begins to hear a woman's voice in his head narrating everything he does. Harold brushed his teeth. Harold was waiting for the bus and so on. And at first, you can understand that he would be uh, concerned about this. He thinks he's losing his mind. Um, but it turns out, in some mysterious way, that he is the main character in a novel that's still being written. The problem is that the narrator also mentioned the impending event of Harold's unexpected death. So Harold is quite upset, as you can imagine. He seeks out a literary professor who gives him this advice. Find out what kind of story you're in. Is it a comedy where everything turns out all right in the end? Or is it a tragedy? Because knowing this will allow him to make the best use of the time he has left. And, you know, I think that's pretty good advice for all of us. Figure out what kind of story you're in. Because life can be confusing and distressing at times. It feels like stuff just happens to us with no clear direction. Mark Twain once said, it is no wonder that truth is stranger than fiction, because fiction has to make sense. I mean, have a look on one hand, the ways that science fiction authors of the past imagined the year 2020. 
And on the other hand, some of the headlines that we've seen in the news this year. I mean, we were supposed to be zipping around in flying cars by now, but instead we've had mass toilet paper hysteria, an invasion of murder hornets, zombie minks rising from the grave, and small towns taken over by gangs of goats. What kind of story is this that we find ourselves in? And at this time of year, when we hear so much about God's love, how God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. But how does the God of love fit into this world of disorder and distress? They say that true love takes your breath away. But this year has been one where many have cried out, I can't breathe whether from a respiratory virus or bushfire smoke or from brutal violence at the hands of police. So where is God's love in all of this? And I know that many of us have had events happen this year that will never make the world news headlines, but they have shaken your world to the core. Looking around, we might easily conclude that love is just not possible. The world is too far gone, or I am too far gone. Or even if we decide, yes, love is possible, we might still conclude that it's just not powerful. You know, it's a nice feeling, but it doesn't actually fix anything. Or we might decide that love is great, but unreliable. And there we live with the anxiety of always needing to make ourselves the kind of person who is lovable. But into our story of disorder and darkness, God speaks, let there be light. As we heard Anna read for us just now, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Christmas is the arrival of a new story. And like light in a dark room, it stands in contrast to the old stories. Because this one tells of a love that is possible and powerful and permanent. Our world certainly is dark at times, but let's pause and consider for a moment the daily experience for the family of Israel at the time when Jesus was born. Their homeland was being invaded and colonized by a brutal empire. Everywhere they looked, they would see signs of their humiliation and defeat. They could still go to the temple in Jerusalem and be reminded of the grand promises given to them about God's unfailing love and faithfulness, this God full of grace and truth. But with every day, the promises were seeming a little further out of reach, a little harder to believe. Just like Adam and Eve in the very first of all stories, they were daily confronted with this question, does God really love you? Is living in his love really the way to abundant life? 
maybe you'd be better off deciding good and evil for yourselves. And you know, people with their backs against the wall don't have the luxury of putting a facade between what they believe and what they do. And for these people, believing in God's promises meant walking a knife's edge. On one side was the pressure to assimilate. Life would be much easier if you just adopted Roman culture and values, although it meant betraying your own people and becoming complicit in the violence against them. On the other side was the pressure to fight back with whatever means available. And this always ended in bloodshed. Just four years before Jesus was born, 2,000 Jews were crucified in a single day. 2,000 cried out, I can't breathe. This is the spiritual equivalent of an earthquake. Everyone felt it. Everyone knew someone directly affected. And you know, the goal of such mass public executions is much more than merely ending the lives of those being executed. They are designed to break the spirit of all those still alive. It was Rome's way of making a public declaration to a conquered people, you don't matter. So where is a loving God in all of that? Though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. You know, when we forget God, it's not the same kind of forgetting as like, hey, I was going to call you, but I forgot your phone number. To forget God or not recognize him is not a failure of the intellect, but of the imagination. And we forget God every time we abandon the idea that love is the only possible and powerful solution to the problems of this world. Because once we've ditched that idea, we would no longer recognize a God of love even if we met face to face. The Bible often uses words to describe God's love like unfailing love and abounding love. There's a reason this distinction is required. Because even when we do try to choose love, our love is often contained in very tight boundaries. Our love does fail. And the love that we depend on from others often fails us. And that's everyday human behavior. The world we see around us is just the accumulated result of everyday human behavior. Because don't we all, at times, trade love of neighbor for ways that seem less costly or more profitable? We do it sometimes out of pride and self-seeking, sometimes out of fear and self-preservation. And if that is true, it means that we are all, all to some degree, complicit in making the world the way that it is. But the good news that we remember at Christmas 
is that we are not abandoned to the world that we have created. Chaos and darkness is not where the story ends, but where it begins. We read before, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or as Jesus put it in Luke chapter six, love your enemies, your enemies. Do good to them without expecting to get anything back. And then you will be children of the most high. Christmas invites us into a new story where a world distorted by unlove is transformed and made new by abounding love. And whoever takes hold of that promise and participates in it has a special place in the story as a child of God. And children don't have to be perfect, only to aspire and to try. Because God's love doesn't come with a condition, but with a promise. His unfailing love will make complete our attempts at love, imperfect though they be. But who is this promise for? Or to put it another way, where are the children of God born? If God is powerful like a king, we would expect his children to be born in palaces, right? Or if God is holy and transcendent, we would think that his children would be most at home in temples. The problem is, not anyone can just rock up at temples and palaces. You have to have the right connections, the right credentials. You've got to be of the right bloodline and pass all the purity tests. And if that is our God, we might easily conclude that his love, great though it may be, is only for some of us and only for some of the time. However, if the children of God are born in stables, anyone can turn up at a stable. If it's a place where shepherds can turn up and just barge in and stand in the presence of God, then anyone can. All right, time for some audience participation. Because we've got an audience now, we've got to make use of it, don't we? And people at home, you can do it too, but nobody will know whether you are or not. But please, everyone, just close your eyes for a second and imagine Christmas, Christmas Day. What kind of smells are wafting through the air on Christmas Day? Please open your eyes now and uh, somebody raise your hand if you've got, what's the smell, what does Christmas smell like? Roast, yeah. Pine, yeah, that's a very Christmassy smell, yeah. Yeah, so? Lots of sugar, <laughs> yeah, sugar and spice and cinnamon and all that good stuff. Uh, how about the smell of fresh manure? <laughs> if we want to preserve those Christmas traditions, 
uh, we're going to need a lot more manure. Uh, what do you reckon, Sandy? Can we get like a little pile over by the manger here? Uh, I'm, all for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a no. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to call that bluff. <laughs> but that is what the first Christmas smelt like. See, the beauty of stables is that anyone can turn up and be in the presence of God. But not everyone will want to because you're going to get a bit of animal stink on your clothes when you do. Right? And that's no difference for a shepherd because they already smell bad. But for the rest of us, uh, it's a risk. Because when you're done at the stable and you're ready to go back to the palace or the temple, they might not let you back in smelling like that. And yet, having been to the stable and seen what you've seen, you may notice that the palaces and temples now grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is what John saw. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. You know, the Roman Empire, at its peak, was glorious. Full of peace and wealth and benevolence. Well, that's what you saw when you looked at the top of the pyramid. However, take a look down in the low places and you get a different story. Its peace was created through war. Its wealth is created through debt and slavery. And its benevolence only comes after the strong have finished dominating and subduing the weak. But John writes, we have seen the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This glory is of an entirely different nature from the glory of Rome. Brothers and sisters, may we never settle for a kingdom of God that is little more than a Christmas ripoff of the kingdoms of this world. Yeah? Because the glory of God is full of grace, a merciful compassion that sees someone struggling for survival and steps down to stand alongside them, even when it means suffering alongside them. This glory is full of truth in the sense of loyalty, a faithfulness that never gives up, never withdraws the offer of friendship despite rejection after rejection. God is more powerful than all kings because of the nature of his love, not in spite of it. Yahweh is holy above all gods because of the nature of his love, not in spite of it. Psalm 48 says, Within your temple, Yahweh, we meditate on your unfailing love. Because the temple was a place where you could go and see a tangible embodiment of God's promise to be present among his people. But on this day, 
God pointed all the lights of heaven down onto a stable and said, do you want to see my glory? Don't go to the temple. Have a look in here. That's where my glory is. My absolute pride and joy. The pinnacle of all my work and the full expression of who I am. God spoke to his people long before through the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 48, we read, Can a nursing mother forget her child? Can she have anything but compassion towards her child? Even if somehow she could forget, I will not forget you, says Yahweh. That's the intensity of emotion that this God feels toward you and me. And what do we see when we look in that stable? We see a mother nursing her child. The two of them absolutely captivated by one another's beauty. Because as far as that baby is concerned, to be in his mother's arms is better than a seat in the richest palace and more sacred than any holy building could ever be. And as far as this mother is concerned, she would give her life to protect her child. Right here is the word made flesh dwelling among us. God's unfailing love makes glorious the meanest of places. Glory is a strange word though, isn't it? One way um, that I find helpful to think about it is if you swap the word glory with the thing that makes it most wonderful. Right, so when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the most wonderful thing about God. Or if we take an example from Winnie the Pooh, we would know that the wonderful thing about Tiggers or we could say the glory of Tiggers, is that their tops are made of rubber and their bottoms are made of springs. Now get this, it is no accident that the Son of God was born into such darkness and poverty. It is glorious good news. The glory of God is not revealed to us in spite of Jesus being a poor working class member of a military-occupied nation. The glory of Yahweh, the wonderful thing that makes him distinct from all other gods, is that he chooses to show the height and breadth and depth of his love in these miserable and rejected places, the very places that all the other so-called gods have forsaken. Well, the most wonderful thing about Tiggers, the height of their glory, as the song goes, the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. When scripture says Yahweh is one, it's not an attempt to have a philosophical debate about monotheism. It is a declaration of uniqueness. Show me anyone else 
in fact or fiction, who has such quality and quantity of compassionate love as this God revealed in Jesus. There you have a person worth imitating, worth becoming an apprentice of. Christmas is inviting you and me into a new story where we can believe in love once more and participate in extending God's mercy anew every morning to the world. This is the story of how God's unfailing love is turning the world upside down and making all things new. Let's pray. God, thank you for your unfailing love revealed in Jesus that is powerful to transform hearts and worlds. Help us as a church, as a community, to encourage each other in becoming disciples of and imitating your kind of love. Amen.